Hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. I should start by saying I was told I didn't introduce myself on the last episode or give you any further information. Just to start by saying, I am Marley Powell, and thank you for listening to the Black Skin Red Heart Podcast. You can email me at redheartpod at gmail.com with any questions, and learn more about this project on marleypowell.net. Please don't forget to rate or review on your podcast service as well. It would really mean a lot. Black Skin Red Heart is a podcast that covers the history of black Americans and communism and contextualizes that history around their convergences through various points in American history. This episode is the second part in the story of Harry Haywood. Harry was an early and important black American communist that from his contributions to communist ideology and helping its evolution to incorporate necessary conditions for black Americans, to his serving as a comrade in arms in several serious and impactful conflicts between communism and fascism, made him a truly exceptional man whose story touches on so many periods and aspects of American history. Harry was born at the turn of the century to former slaves. His childhood was abrupt, and he quickly aged into adulthood by the time he hit his young teenage years. The first episode, The Origins of a Black Bolshevik, helped establish the world that Harry was born and raised into. This episode will start to illustrate the man he was shaped into by the world he lived in. At this point, the First World War is coming to the United States. The U.S. government decided to enter the European fight, and Harry's life begins in full in this chapter. The boy who left Omaha with his family to escape racist violence will end up in Paris, a whole world away, where he'll begin to experience just how wide the world reaches. Part two, the first war. In his youth, Harry was a voracious reader. It was a family practice to push their children to not just be literate, but give them critical thinking skills and an ability to judge the world around them. Despite the hall's poverty, art and literature were not strangers in their home, and politics was a conversation. This intellectualism came from their position as a family of black Americans in either Omaha or Chicago. The constant presence of politics was a shadow from the pressures and demands of the world that they lived in and would come to shape a belief that Harry carried with him through his life, that circumstances breed the necessity for politics. Harry's brother, Otto Hall, was an inspiration to the younger Harry. Harry took up reading soon after Otto to try and catch up to his older brother. Harry was a smart boy, but believed Otto was smarter. Otto and Harry's father, Haywood, kept a substantive collector of literature in their home. Haywood Sr. was a self-taught man. He had not only taught himself to read, but in his life made a point to amass a large library of European history, European literature, and anything that completed the traditional and highly regarded Anglophile library. He made sure that the Hall's home was a well-read household, one that ensured knowledge wasn't kept at a distance, that the children would read and be encouraged to read and learn in their spare time. Haywood didn't expect the children to find the resources he provided to them from anywhere outside of their home, so home instruction would be crucial for the Halls. Harry believed that Otto was the most brilliant one in their family, and he believed maybe of everyone, black and white, in South Omaha. Otto skipped grades while he was in grade school, and then again when he was in high school. By high school, Otto was a published writer, a poet who had penned a poem inspired by a painting in the family living room of the Black Infantry's 10th Cavalry's Charge at San Juan Hill, a painting that Harry would come back to thinking about frequently in his life. The painting of the 10th Cavalry sat in the living room and would be explained to the boys throughout their childhood, and they were encouraged to read in front of it. The poem of the Cavalry's Charge that Otto wrote in high school ended up published in an Omaha daily paper. When Otto was 14, his high school teacher made a visit to see his parents. The teacher was invested in Otto's future. The white community in Omaha had seen promise in Otto, and they had pushed for the teacher to visit with the family. 
They wanted to lobby the family to accept what the community had decided Otto's future should be. The school that Otto attended was a well-regarded Jesuit instructional. The Jesuits came to the halls, a Methodist family, to speak with them about their plans for their oldest son. The teacher was tasked to get the hall's support to enlist Otto in the local priesthood. Their offer was a unique one. They were offering him a place in the community, a place in Omaha, one that would give him a respectable place in a higher education. The catch, of course, was that it would place Otto as one of the few black faces in the overwhelmingly white world of Omaha Catholic religious hierarchy. It didn't take the halls to reject the offer. Otto rejected the proposition outright. His plans were to be an architect. He couldn't even envision himself tied to the priesthood. He had dreams that went far beyond Omaha. Otto always had big ideas. At the time, the idea of a black architect was unheard of, but as Harry notes, it's just about as ludicrous as a black priest in Omaha. Otto's rejection of the aspirations that the white Omahans had for him isolated him from the white community. He was frozen out at school in a different way. He had rejected their offer for purpose in their community, and because of that, they didn't want to nurture what it was in him that they saw in the first place. Otto dropped out of high school by his senior year. He ended up working as a bellhop in a mid-level hotel in Omaha. Because he was younger, having been skipped ahead by a few years in school, Otto was out of place with his peers in the working world. Harry had not yet entered high school, but he would end up following in his brother's place, leaving school early just a few years later. Otto had often matched well with the white worlds he occupied when he was younger. He had white friends, even white girlfriends. By the time he hit his adult years, racial barriers shifted in adulthood and separated him from his experience in his youth, and the result made him a misanthrope. Harry, several years younger, saw in his older brother the warning signs from certain effects America left on the psyche of black youth. Harry said, Otto had passed through the age of puberty and was becoming more and more conscious of his race. Along with the natural detachment and withdrawal from childhood socialization with girls, in his case, white girls who were former childhood sweethearts, Otto experienced a withdrawal and non-socialization because of his race. He ended up quite alone because there were not many black kids his age in South Omaha. As a very sensitive person on the verge of manhood, I imagine he began to feel those changes keenly. After he dropped out of school in 1908, Otto was soon attracted to the sport in life, the pool halls and sporting houses of North Omaha. He wanted to be among black people. He was anxious to get away from father. I understood that Otto had arrived at the first stage of his identity crisis and had gone to where he felt he belonged. It seems Otto was disgruntled with the box he was forced into and the inability to be seen as himself rather than what he represented to mostly white people around him. He was a few years older than Harry, but Otto's rebellion was cut short by the call to war. He left his job as a bellhop and jumped into the trenches of Western Europe. Harry joined the military just a few years after Otto, when he aged into being able to enlist. Harry ended up stationed in France and faced the general carnage that existed through the entire war. Harry was shipped out immediately and sent to the front lines to engage in the French battlegrounds. In early 1918, nearing the end of the war, Harry, part of the 8th Regiment, was sent to an infamous battleground. Two years earlier, Verdun had seen unspeakable horror and death, and even two years later, the deaths were still occurring. For years, bombing, raids, and sheer death had barely stopped. After three years of immense war, the 8th Regiment was sent to face off with Germans at Verdun and push them back. Harry was called with the 8th and the others who were called to fight. By the end of Harry's fight, the black battalion he was part of left one of their men buried in Verdun. Robert M. Lee was buried by the 8th Regiment in the valley where the remains of many other American soldiers who died there still rest. 
Harry's battalion was trained by an American named Colonel T.A. Roberts. Colonel Roberts told the black men serving under him, Since West Point, I have always served with colored troops, the 9th and 10th Cavalry. Captain Patton knows me. He was one of my staff sergeants in the old 10th Cavalry. These men will tell you where I stand with respect to the race issue and everything else. We are going into the line soon, and I am sure that the men of this regiment will pile up a record for which your people and the whole of America will be proud. For black American soldiers serving in the First World War, race added another aspect on the European front, a specific kind of American racism that was exported to Europe. The United States was carrying American racism over into Europe and perpetuating acts of racism against its own soldiers on European lines. Stories were coming out and reaching Harry. In the northeast corner of France in Copiègne, an American black battalion were marching toward the front lines, and on their march they encountered a still-hanging, lynched black soldier. The soldier had been hanged for the rape of a village girl, and allegedly the soldier's body was left hanging by the American military for 24 hours to assure the French population of the swiftness of American justice. This hanging ended up being part of a deliberate campaign by American command from afar. The belief spread among many of the soldiers with Harry that it was to scare influence with the French civilians against the coming black soldiers while trying to maintain allegiances to an American presence. In fact, this may not have been far from the truth. It is alleged through a document published by W.E.B. Dubois. Dubois discovered the letter and published it in his paper. The United States government sent a letter to French military command titled, Secret Information Concerning Black American Troops. It was distributed before the arrival of black regiments on European shores. It was sent out the same summer Harry was in Copian. Quoting the letter, It is important for French officers who have been called upon to exercise command over black American troops or to live in close contact with them, to have an exact idea of the position occupied by Negroes in the United States. This information set forth in the following communication ought to be given to these officers, and it is in their interest to have these matters known and widely disseminated. The increasing number of Negroes in the United States, about 15 million, would create for the white race in the Republic a menace of degeneracy, were it not that an impossible gulf has been made between them. As this danger does not exist for the French race, the French public has become accustomed to treating the Negro with familiarity and indulgence. This indulgence and this familiarity are matters of grievous concern to the Americans. They consider them an affront to their national policy. They are afraid that contact with the French will inspire in black Americans aspirations which to Americans appear intolerable. It is of the utmost importance that every effort be made to avoid profoundly estranging American opinion. When the French ministry heard about the distribution of the racist document from the Americans, they ordered the copies to be collected and burned. The service of black soldiers in Western Europe was something acknowledged and honored by some of Europe at the time. By the end of the war, 171 black Americans were awarded the French Legion of Honor. Contrast that with America, where only two black American soldiers received the Medal of Honor for their service in World War I, Freddie Stowers and Henry Johnson. Freddie Stowers was presented with the medal 73 years after his death, and Henry Johnson received his 85 years after his death. During his time in war, Harry was unable to escape the presence of American racism trailing him everywhere. Harry wondered how much of the world he could really see under the American imperial shadow. He feared deep inside him that he wouldn't be able to escape it. Compiègne would be the site of the armistice with Germany that would start the end of the First World War. Harry was in Compiègne in the summer of 1918, and by November of 1918, both sides met at the site to try to stop the fight. By June of 1919, the Treaty of Versailles had been signed and Europe began its second peacetime period in the 20th century. During the 8th Regiment's long walk back home from the edges of Germany all the way to the western shores of France, Harry fell ill. 
A kidney infection that had gone untreated on the battlefields had hit his heart on the march to the American outpost in France. He collapsed on the march and fell into a coma for five days. When Harry awoke days later, he was in an entirely French-speaking hospital in Mont-sur-Seine. He was surprised at first that he was the only black person in the hospital. It shouldn't have been too surprising, but what ended up standing out most to Harry was that there wasn't another American. This limitation wasn't just a cultural one, but one of communication. He couldn't really speak or understand the staff or doctors. This meant that at first his illness wasn't fully explained to him, but he trusted them and allowed them to do whatever it was they felt they should be doing. Harry didn't end up really minding. What he especially liked was that he was out of the dirt and the mud of the war. The hospital was barely sterile, but it wasn't the trenches and fields of the war. For the French in the hospital, they loved Harry's accent when he tried to speak French, or were at least humoring enough to the injured American. It really seemed that they just loved Harry. He was treated kindly and warmly by them all. The nurses even took the extra steps to drive in an old woman from the village. The old woman was the only person near the hospital in central France who spoke English. She made the trip out to the hospital a few times to try and converse what little she could with Harry in his native tongue. They hoped at the hospital that it would give him just a little more company and someone to speak with. The woman and Harry, though, had little in common. Their references seemed to hit a generational split, and their conversations were treading. Harry found the gesture incredibly kind, and it made him care for the hospital staff even more. Harry was able to stay for a while at the hospital, but soon got on the mend. Once he was good enough to walk well on his own, the military had him discharged and sent him off to Paris. Paris as a city was all new for Harry, but it was a place that he had read about since he was young. Being the foreign and romantic place it was, Harry knew some of its locations from history and literature that his father kept in their home. In Paris, Harry bonded with several of the foreign soldiers in the military hospital. They would be the ones who would welcome him into the world of post-war Paris. In the hospital, Harry asked them, what do you do for money? The soldiers told him, the soldiers told him, don't worry about that, just stick around a while and we'll show you the ropes. This was a hospital for recovering soldiers who weren't ready to go home, but were able enough to stay and take in everything that Paris had to offer. The soldiers took advantage of the wide range of entertainment that was there for them. Theater, racetracks, boxing, booze, drugs, and of course, girls. Americans weren't an uncommon sight in France. At this point, there were about one million American soldiers in France and thousands more serving in other ways. Paris at the time was full of French, English, and American women, many working with the Red Cross who would make visits every day to the hospital where Harry was placed. The Red Cross nurses would accompany soldiers on excursions into Paris and treat them with tickets for shows, sports, and anything else the soldiers wanted to see. Harry would regularly receive chocolate, razors, fountain pens, watches, and other wonderful gifts. When not out on the town with friends, Harry spent his time taking in the city he had spent so much time reading about. He would wander through Notre Dame and recreate the scenes from The Hunchback of Notre Dame in his mind. Then after two months in Paris, Harry received a letter from the military that told him he was to return home. They felt his health had improved enough and with the end of the war, the Americans were pulling their troops back. The trip back to the 8th Regiment was quick. Trucks and trains moved him quickly through France to reunite with his regiment. The 8th Regiment were staying in tents on the cold and windy swamp-like terrain of central France, a somewhat familiar but alien terrain for all the men. It was back to the soldiers' camp where Harry began to read newspapers from back home and where stories circulated between soldiers on what they'd heard about life in 1919 America. It had been four years since many of them had been home and the country had changed some. At home, stories of Jim Crow, lynchings, and racial violence stung Harry harder than they had before. 
despite him being in war. His time with Europeans had made him soft on some of the specific edges America offered back home. To quote Harry, he became less used to the American nigger-hating way of life. Waiting in their tents on the edges of the battlefields, the American soldiers Harry found himself with were being brought back to their own reality at home. In America, it seemed another war was igniting as the war wound down and peace was brought to Europe. Once Harry's regiment was summoned to the American Army Hospital in Brest, he found that it was staffed entirely by white Americans. Harry was assigned to and quartered in Negro wards before being shuffled into a Negro hospital, and then Jim Crow segregated ships that brought the soldiers back to America. Whatever lines had been erased or at least ignored during wartime were coming back. Unlike the white soldiers on the other ships, the returning black veterans were ordered to make their own beds and then remake them however many times to the nurse's satisfaction. The black soldiers were ordered around by white people who weren't in their chain of command. The old world was making itself known as the ship made its way back across the Atlantic. This reinforced stratification of race while in Europe pushed Harry to see class struggle within the context of black Americans' position next to the same white working class that he had just served with and recovered with. This mixed with the earlier experience of seeing black people being used as a political tool against the European populace started to tie together for Harry that you cannot separate the two, race and class at least how the two are used in the world to reinforce one another. Harry made his return home to Chicago on July 28, 1919. After leaving Omaha and then Minneapolis, the Hall family were part of a wave of migration that led black Americans in masses to make northern cities their home. They were fleeing the violence that Harry's father faced in Omaha and his grandparents faced in Missouri, Tennessee, and Nebraska. The violence was spread across most states and the migration saw an exodus from the South. The five years during the war were some of the larger spikes of black migration during the early 20th century. In 1919, there were nearly 100 lynchings in the South committed by the KKK. With European migration being decreased, if not cut off entirely due to the war, the 1910s were filled with many black Americans populating the cities of the North into the millions. During this time, the population of black people in Chicago increased 148%. By that point, Chicago became the nation's largest city after New York. This massive shift in demographics caused community tensions to grow into something new, and inevitably those tensions would boil over. The riot began at Chicago's 29th Street Beach. The beaches then were segregated, and the 26th Street Beach was where black people were allowed, and just north of there was the 29th Street Beach, which was the white beach. A group of young black men were out on a raft in the waters, and the current had dragged them across the unmarked boundary between the white and black sides of the beach. From the 29th Street Beach, a white man began to throw stones at the young men on the raft, hitting one. Eugene Williams fell into the water and drowned. The immediate aftermath of Williams' death caused tensions to flare in Chicago. The man who killed Eugene Williams went unarrested, and soon black Chicagoans took to the streets. Vigilante mobs, mostly led by white people, soon followed to chase them down. A large white mob nearly took Providence Hospital and burned it. It's the hospital in the black part of town, but strangely, the police managed to hold them off. One of the infamous street gangs, Reagan's Colts, made up of Irish Americans, put on blackface and set fire to Polish and Lithuanian neighborhoods in an attempt to scare those communities' anger up against black rioters. Many of the Irish mobs in Chicago were unhappy with the more recent Eastern European immigrants in part them being largely uninterested in taking part in the violence, and they wanted to inspire action in some way. The newer immigrants' lack of interest in taking part in violence against black people was one of the many reasons there was a distance in space between these two white groups. Largely, the Poles and Lithuanians did not take part in the riots and viewed the conflict as white versus black, 
with themselves counted as something else. Given the place of the newer European immigrants, they probably viewed one another with more venom than black people, who they were largely removed from. At the end of the riots, 38 people were dead. Most were civilians. There were tensions within the Chicago police force, which was integrated. Riots were allowed to flourish, and only some areas given real protection. The only police officer to die in the riot was a black cop named John Simpson. Over 500 people were injured, and over 1,000 people, mostly black, were left homeless after a significant amount of property damage from arson fires. The destruction to the city was so significant because the riot lasted an entire week. Harry arrived back in Chicago one day into the riots. On return to the States, Harry had immediately taken up a job as a waiter on a dining car. After the war, he suffered financially and needed to immediately take up work. The car ran between St. Thomas, Canada and Chicago. Because of the job, Harry hadn't been able to make his full return home to see Chicago or his family. On his first ride home, as they moved through Detroit, the train had picked up word that the riot had broken out. The day that Harry's train pulled into Chicago, some black soldiers who had made their return home were killed in the riots. The news of the riots may not have reached them because they had driven straight into the fires of the city and were caught in the struggle. They had driven straight into the heart of the fight and were killed in their car. For a week, the black neighborhoods in Chicago were put in a state of terror as the city raged day and night. On the train, Harry knew he had to try and organize the black staff or they'd be heading into a slaughter. He pulled together a group of black workers who were all from Chicago, and they decided to hop off the train together at a stop before the station and to stay off the streets and to make their way back across through the safe areas. Once Harry's train pulled into the station, he and the others kept to the train tracks that ran the edges of Chicago and moved like a military unit quietly through the rioting city. Harry said about the day, Southside Chicago, the black ghetto, was like a besieged city. Whole sections of it were in ruins. Buildings burned and the air was heavy with smoke, reminiscent recently returned. Our small band huddled like a bunch of raw recruits under machine gun fire, turned up 26th Street, and then into the heart of the ghetto. The battle at home was just as real as the battle in France has been. As I recall, there was full-scale street fighting between black and white. Black people were snatched from streetcars and beaten or killed. Pitched battles were fought in ghetto streets. Hoodlums roamed the neighborhood shooting at random. Within a day, Harry had found himself with a regimental armory. Harry had wanted to do more about what was happening and hoped to meet up with friends from his regiment, who he hoped had a plan. In fact, the black veterans had gotten together and were planning. Harry learned soon that the veterans were organizing an immediate armed defense, as there was a serious rumor floating that an Irish gang was planning to invade the black ghetto that night. The black veterans made serious plans to put up a defense for the neighborhood. Harry was in a group that were positioned in an apartment above 51st near State Street. The room Harry found himself in was stocked with half a dozen 1903 Springfield rifles and a Browning submachine gun. They had sat the Browning in the window and aimed it out into the street with an eye for invaders. That night was the most violent for the riot. Harry said, at 35th and State, there was a car waiting with the engine running. When the whites in the truck came through, they pulled in behind an open fire from a machine gun. The truck crashed into a telephone pole. Most of the men in the truck had been shot down, and the rest fled. Among them were several Chicago police officers, off-duty, of course. At 51st and State, where Harry was waiting, it ended up being a long night. The men didn't come, but much of the rest of the city was in a violent craze. 1919 is called the Red Summer. 26 race riots took hold of cities across the country. Chicago was the bloodiest, but many American streets ran red with blood in the summer of 1919. In Omaha, where Harry was born, 
a black man named Will Brown was lynched by a mob. The white mayor had tried to step in and stop the murder, but the crowds put a rope around his neck and tried to string him up as well until he had to relent and let the crowd have their way with Will Brown. The violence of that summer led the black community in Chicago to come together in a new way. It was in Chicago after the riots and during the summer of 1919 when Harry reunited with his brother Otto. Otto had been honorably discharged from the military. He'd served with a black service battalion that was sent to the front lines as a labor unit to repair roads, warehouses, barracks, and help load and unload the endless run of supplies coming to the front. Otto had enough of the orders coming down from his white superiors and went AWOL in Paris. Turns out Otto was in Paris just a few months before Harry was there. Otto had had a lot of fun in Paris, but he was eventually arrested by military police who caught him one day on the street. During his stint in the American jail that held AWOL soldiers, Otto was further indoctrinated into the politics of rebellion. It was in the American soldiers' jail where Otto had fully become a communist. In Chicago, Otto had tried to find work in several industries that were sweeping across the region at the time. Otto had tried to put to work what he had learned in the war with machines to use. It was at these factories where he found the fight to enter the workforce another battle entirely. The skills he had were weighed against his record. Many jobs would pass or he'd be hired and fired but eventually, Otto found the IWW, the International Workers of the World. It was through the IWW that Otto found stable work. Then finally, when he found Harry again, he introduced Harry to the world of United Workers that he had finally found support in. It should be mentioned at this time the kinds of work that black people historically have undertaken in the United States. In 1920, Vladimir Lenin commented on the black situation in America. The similarity of the economic position of the Negroes with that of the former serfs in the agrarian centers of Russia is remarkable. I want to get more into Lenin's statement and Harry's admirations of him uh, when Harry eventually gets to Russia, but for right now I want to step back and look at the way labor was for black people in the early 1920s so that we can understand the situation Harry found himself in when white and black labor were segregated efforts. Up until the First World War, the basic industry workforce in the United States was dominated by white workers. Up until this point, industries had been fine using the cheap labor provided by recent European immigrants. During the war, black labor was used to fill the void from the number of immigrants that were needed for the war effort and the number of white workers who were drafted into the service. In America, during the wartime period, immigration dropped 80%. And during this period, the occupational status of black people in the U.S. overwhelmingly shifted from personal service to basic industry. One people diverted into trenches, and the other marched into factories to maintain supply. This forced shift of labor and forced acceptance of black people into the workforce did have a beneficial economic impact for many black Americans though they had to fight for it. The three largest steelworks, U.S. Steel Corporation, the Inland Steel Company plant, and U.S. Steelworkers South were all in the Illinois area. These Chicago mills supplied more than 14,000 manufacturing plants nationwide. That was just what Chicago contributed to the steel industry. At this time, Chicago was home to the nation's largest meatpacking industry, the horrors of which were made famous in Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle. It was also the home to other massive industries that were necessary to maintain American supply, especially during wartime. These factories were owned by a few corporate interests, which were in total owned by about 10 men. They didn't own just nearly the entire steel and meat supply, but also held much of the American megacity's wealth. This consolidation of the industry mixed with the decline of the workforce matched perfectly with one of the largest migrations in the nation's history. The great migration of black Americans from the South to the North. Alan Speer, an economic scholar of black America, wrote an important text on 20th century black economics titled Black Chicago. In Black Chicago, Speer said, 
Black migration was not just a response to the changing economic conditions, to the coming of the boll weevil and the decline of cotton culture, as many contemporary observers supposed. It was a deliberate and positive strategy to escape the more oppressive system of Jim Crow, segregation and lynching in the South. All of this led black Americans to a new place in America that led them to a new position in this nation. It wasn't all smooth once black people hit the North, obviously. Tensions in the city of Chicago and around the industrial sections of America had begun to boil over even before the war and migration shifts were in full. In the earlier part of the century, white workers confronted black workers that were coming into their factories. In 1904, 18,000 white union workers who worked in the meatpacking, steelworks, and other industries in Chicago walked off the job to strike. Chicago had been eaten entirely from inside. They were making these industries worlds of wealth, but making little themselves. These forces of industry had drained the city of any wealth it would have had, and the hoarding powers were protected by the elected powers who had their hands in the other levels of power. The fight for the striking white workers was over the unskilled labor minimum wage being raised, but only a meager amount. They were striking over a raise to 18 cents an hour, about $6 an hour in today's dollars. The industry forces decided to break the strike by hiring non-union black labor at even cheaper rates than they were already paying their white workers. Police escorted the black strike-breaking workers into the factories to protect the new workers and ensure that production wouldn't be halted. This caused tensions to flare across the city. Black workers were seen as colluding and reinforced the belief that black workers were a separate and this strike break attempt led to at least 4,000 white union workers rioting in the streets of Chicago. This strike breaking measure wasn't an unusual event to happen in an industry with early 20th century labor and was a common occurrence for non-unionized black workers to break into a new workforce. Black labor was often used to break strikes and unions acting as a wedge to pry workers from their needs by trying to undercut them. However, at the time, non-union hiring was a major way for black labor to enter basic trades. Black workers often had little issue with breaking strikes as many unions didn't keep solidarity with black labor. Many black workers were barred by unions' constitutional decrees. The machinist union limited membership to, quote, white free-born male citizens of some civilized country and the Railway Carmen Union limited membership to white persons, male or female, of good moral character. When Harry worked on the train that brought him home to Chicago after the war in and into the riots, he and the other black porters were not allowed to be union members. Claude McKay, the American author and black leftist delegate, said, the blacks are hostile to communism because they regard it as a white working class movement and they consider the white workers their greatest enemy, who draw the color line against them in the factory and office and lynch and burn them at the stake for being colored. It's a long-standing tradition in the United States to try to control outcomes and guide policy by using one disenfranchised group against another to break poor and desperate white workers by hiring cheaper black labor, to scare them back to work and ask less questions. As a result of this, when black labor flooded into the factories, starting in the early parts of the century, tensions began to rise, and those tensions and fears were used against all white workers. This isn't to say that all unions or union workers were racist and violent. It was then, as it is now, systemic in how it operated. There are always those who sat back allowing the evil, but some did try to take stands against it, not just because they cared about black people, but that they saw the way the levers of control were being used against them from the racial tensions. The organized tensions allowed the owners of the factories to do what they wanted when they didn't want to pay out. This is not to say that many white union leaders at this moment began working to try to address the problem of Jim Crow being exported and following black workers to the north. White union officials had seen some issues making inroads with black labor. The success of racial politics to be used as a wedge within class struggle was in part from the surface invisible racism that ran through the labor movement. 
many of the white leaders went, were unable to break the classism of their racism and allow for any understanding between the two sets. The famed Chicago Irish American trade unionist John Fitzpatrick, who was head of the Chicago Federation of Labor, said of black workers in Chicago, if we were dealing with what we call the Northern Negro, we should not have very much difficulty. They understand the necessity of organization, but the Southern Negro is different. We figured that his slavery days had ended about the time he came up here to work in the packing houses. Marcus Garvey, the famed black separatist, said of the American labor crisis at the time, it seems rather strange and a paradox, but the only convenient friend of the Negro worker or laborer in America at present time is the white capitalist. The capitalist, being selfish, seeks only the largest profit out of labor, is willing and glad to use Negro labor wherever possible on a scale reasonably below the standard of white union wage, but if the Negro unionizes himself to the level of the white worker, the choice and preference of employment is given to the white worker. Black labor didn't want to join in an effort that had offered benefits to its white members while denying black workers membership who held the same jobs. They couldn't make the inroads necessary to become successfully unionized, and so were left with the position of taking the best paying job. The owner of the company didn't matter, and the highest pay or pay at all was the aim for the workers. Harry battled against these bourgeois white values as he was trying to enter the workforce in Chicago. Harry felt that the discriminatory values these union leaders held came from an interest in upholding capitalism and a conventional way of life, even if they didn't see it that way themselves. The movement was kneecapping itself in a critical moment of growth. The interest of black labor not unionizing was met by white labor with bourgeois values holding to racial and classist thinking that continued the racial stratification which perpetuated their dominance. Harry's fear was that it may not just be ignorance that kept these values in power. To try and figure out what he was thrown into the middle of, Harry would come back to communist writers. Leon Trotsky said of black American communist involvement, we cannot tell them to set up a state because that will weaken imperialism and so will be good for us, the white workers. That goes against internationalism itself. We cannot say to them, stay here even at the price of economic progress. We can say it is for you to decide if you wish to take a part of the country. It is all right, but we do not wish to make the decision for you. Harry felt the decision was his. These issues were a problem for the workers, but they were convenient for the owners. However, an issue was growing for the owners. Resentment among the workers was building. Pay was bad, conditions were bad, and the unions were demanding serious changes be made. In 1917, a strike was brewing that threatened to halt thousands of workers and seriously affect production. White workers were being organized by their unions, and they were falling in line to strike. Their fear was that black workers would be used to break the strike efforts. The white unions were unsure what the black labor movement looked like and if it was organized or not. The surprise was that much of the black labor movement was organizing. Black organizers managed to connect in with white organizers, and black workers would join in the strike. We'll get into the Black Unions of Chicago more in the next episode, and it is a fantastic story. But this union, and even the, the hint of it, was a bad sign for the owners, so they started making calls. And before the end of the year, in December 19, the federal government entered the situation to help negotiate. The move halted the unity between unions and stopped the joint strike effort before it had a chance to make an impact. By the time the war had ended and servicemen returned, many of the black workers were fired without any union protection from their jobs. By spring of 1919, over 10,000 black laborers were looking for work. As Harry and Otto spent more time together, Harry was brought into the fold with the IWW. Harry was happy to be able to use Otto as a filter. It had been a while since he'd been around someone that he could discuss the kind of reading he liked to do. Harry complained to Otto about the books he was studying and the issues he had started to see with them. Always very literate, Harry spent a great deal of time reading writers who he now saw in a different light. H.L. Mencken was an American man of letters from the first half of the 20th century. 
Harry had appreciated his wit and intellect when he was young. Now he had started to see something else in his words. Harry had grown to feel that Mencken was a racist and a classist. This isn't an entirely incorrect read of Mencken. He is still held up as a great American intellectual, but he also referred to Americans of lower class than him as the anthropoid majority. Mencken was the quintessential elitist in so many ways, and Harry began to see this elitism in a new way. He saw it as a vile, classist value that reinforced the worst kinds of American political violence. Mencken was and is renowned for his wit, but Harry came to see that his wit made no real attempt at resolving these issues. Harry felt Mencken would rather make jokes about the downtrodden whites that he saw below himself than make any attempt to bring moral clarity to the situation. It was a waste, Harry thought, as Mencken had a simple and clear way in his words to show why the world was the way it was. It was Otto who told Harry to quit reading these bourgeois authors and start reading Marx and Engels. In 1918, Harry read State and Revolution, the work Lenin wrote in 1916 before the long, bloody year of 1917. Harry said, Who were the enemies of the black freedom struggle? While Marcus Garvey claimed the entire white race was the enemy, it did not escape us that he was inconsistent by being soft on white capitalists. Harry had seen a unity from poverty and oppression, not that he felt all white workers were his brother, but still their realities were not entirely dissimilar. This was a fact that couldn't escape him and shaped his early views on liberation for all workers in America. There were a few white workers who Harry and Otto had made friends with. Their friends had openly declared themselves as communists, and Harry cites them as the first communists he ever knew, other than his brother. At dinners and parties, they would lay out the communist situation to Harry from their perspective, but he still had his own. They were blind in many ways to the kinds of struggle that Harry saw daily, but he still appreciated their worldview. To quote Harry, What added great weight to my favorable impression of the communists, however, was their political identity with the successful Bolshevik revolution. I had been taken totally unaware of the revolution's significance. I first heard of it during an incident that occurred in France in August of 1918. On one side of the road, there was a high barbed wire fence, and behind it loitered groups of soldiers in strange uniforms being kept as prisoners. They spoke us in a strange tongue, but we understood from their gestures that they were asking for cigarettes. When we asked who they were, one of them replied in halting English that they were Russian Cossacks. They had been withdrawn from the lines, disarmed and quarantined. They were considered unreliable because of the revolution in Russia. At the time, I was not even sure of the meaning of the word revolution, some kind of civil disorder I conjectured. It wasn't until I returned from France that I began reading about the Russian Revolution, and its significance slowly dawned on me, despite the distorted view in the U.S. press. Socializing with black and white communists, along with his exposure to many leftist writers, would shape Harry's education with communist ideology and thought. A problem then that often arose for Harry was the continued disillusionment of a racial unity of workers. Many of the white workers he was good friends with, but many of the others he was not. Many were not pleased to see growing numbers of black workers alongside them. It wasn't that Harry expected enthusiasm, but the general hostility of forcing workers off lines or attempting to close off work opportunities were real impediments to the coalescence of the working class. With this tension, Harry saw significant complication to the racial balance in America that would shape his theory of self-determination for black Americans. John Sell, an American historian who wrote The Highest Stage of White Supremacy, a work that compared Jim Crow United States to apartheid South Africa, penned a succinct definition for race as understood through the tensions it creates. Quote, Only when racially conscious groups collide with one rationalizing its dominance while the other strives to maintain its identity and integrity, does race become a social and historical factor. End quote. To ignore that our country's class structure and race stratification are built together makes it impossible to address any repair. The state reinforces their ideas of race to perpetuate the class dynamic and structure. 
In State and Revolution, Vladimir Lenin's book that Harry found most significant in his learning, Lenin said, This petty bourgeois utopia, which is inseparable from the ideas of the state being above classes, led in practice to the betrayal of the interests of the working classes. End quote. It is a double hammer of division and isolation by a system against its own people. For Harry, the racist and imperial American government could not be separated from itself. The same government that now espoused the virtues of capitalistic enterprise was the same that encouraged the capitalistic enterprise of slavery. In the belly of the beast with the white and black communists in Chicago coming up against white unionists, Harry began to realize the scope of the problem. The arms of the state were not being used to help whites exclusively as he had been brought to believe, but rather that the state was being used to protect the owner class and divide the rest. Harry had returned from a violent war to a divided nation. The continent of Europe tore itself apart after countless nations declared war on one another after a period of nationalistic peace. Now Harry saw a violent nationalistic trend coming into view back home, and it was accelerating into great violence already. Harry would find some answers to his questions through the work he'd do with the Communist Party in Chicago. The next episode is called The Negro Question, and it concerns the American Communist Party. We will dig into Harry's radicalization in many black uh, communist groups and his rise to the American Communist Party. His education into communism as a practice and cover as the labor struggles raged across Chicago. We'll do an even more in-depth look at labor struggles in the early party to part of the 20th century. And we'll get up to how he as a black American ended up studying at a university in the Soviet Union. Thank you for listening to the second part of the Harry Haywood biography. I am Marley Powell, and thank you for listening to Black Skin Red Heart. You can email me at redheartpod at gmail.com with any questions and learn more about this project on marleypowell.net. The podcast can be followed on Twitter or Instagram at redheartpod. You can more, listen to more episodes on any service where you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on a podcast service. At this point for us as a small-scale podcast, it really means a lot and um, really help keep this project going. So thank you for listening and have a great rest of your day.